Good morning, church. Feels really good to be in the house of God. I can't wait to worship all of you in a few weeks' time. Now, we're continuing our series, Under One Roof, where we talk about reclaiming our relationship with one another. And I want to start us off by sharing this phenomenal study done by the Harvard University. In 1938, a group of researchers wanted to find the answer for this seemingly simple question. What makes a good and satisfying life? And to do that, they followed 724 men starting when they were teens or early 20s and all throughout their life, through marriage, parenthood, through war, life crisis, old age, and they gathered large amounts of data on their emotional, physical, and mental health. Now, this study is really one of a kind. It's very rare, uh, number one, because of its longevity. Uh, it has lasted 80 years and is still ongoing today. Number two is the depth of the study. You know, it's not like we do studies nowadays, we send some survey monkey questionnaires for you to fill in. This, this was not like that. It wasn't just questionnaires. They visited the homes, they spoke to the parents, they spoke to the kids, they watched videos of their interaction, they did brain scans, they studied their medical records, and, and, and so on. And they used a very representative sample size. They took people on the top of the social ladder, students from Harvard, and they took people from some of the poorest neighborhoods. And some of these men eventually went on to be lawyers, doctors. One of them became a president of the United States, while some of them ended up alcoholics and schizophrenics. And after hours and tens of thousands of pages of data, they came to this simple conclusion. The biggest predictor of life satisfaction it's not health, it's not wealth, it's not status, it's not IQ, it's not your background, it's not fame. It's simply the quality of relationships. And when you look at the study, it's just amazing. It talks about how uh, these men developed chronic disease towards the end of their life, right, uh, as they grew old. And the biggest difference was for those with healthy relationships, their happiness level did not fluctuate too much, even on days where the pain was severe. But for those who were isolated and lived alone, the pain was a magnifier and it just made life unbearable. Now, I know some of you are thinking, I don't need an area study to tell me relationships are important. I know that. And you are right. When we look at it biblically, it makes perfect sense. Because every one of us, we are created to relate. And that's what we want to do in this series, is to see every one of us take one step forward in improving, enhancing, and reclaiming our relationships. All right? Now, if you have been following us, this is our finale, our fifth week. And for the past four weeks, we kind of talk about different actions we can do to reclaim our relationships. One thing I realized, all these things that we talked about, it's really not easy, right? Uh, look at this, submitting, forgiving, submitting to one another. Uh, it, it's hard. We want people to submit to us. Forgiving one another, now that, that's not easy. We, we hurt, uh, it's difficult. Carrying one another's burden, building one another. I got a lot of things to carry on myself. I got a lot of things to build. And living in peace with one another, that our topic today, 
again, it's something really against the trend. Did you know we are living in a time where conflict within the household unit, the family unit, is at its peak? Since last year, March, 78,000 Malaysian couples have went through a divorce. One in six women today face domestic abuse by their partners. Family conflicts have soared 33% since the pandemic started. It's not easy, really, to live in peace. But it's all made possible when we experience this verse here in John 13. When we experience His love as I have loved you, then we are empowered to love one another. All right? So I jump straight into our topic today uh, on living in peace. Culturally, living in peace, it has a very conditional or reactive connotation. Now, what do I mean? When we watch a movie and there's a villain, right? Everything is in chaos, it's destroying all the cities and all those things. And then there's a hero who defeated the villain. Then only we can live in peace. And sometimes this mindset, we carry it over to every aspect of our life. Uh, we look at our homes. If only my wife is more loving and understanding, then I can live in peace. If only my kids were more obedient, then I can live in peace. We go to our workplace. If only my, my, my colleagues don't play politics, my boss is nicer, more understanding, then we can live in peace. If only I have financial freedom, I can buy a nice house with a nice view, nice pool, then I can live in peace. And that's commonly how we think. We look at peace as very reactive. When I studied the word peace in the Bible, I find it to paint a very different picture. There were four times the Bible used the word peace in an active form, in a verb form, all right? It's an action. And in all four of those situations, the people there, they had conflicts, they had tensions, they had challenges, and the Bible did not tell them, resolve the conflict after the challenges are over, then only you live in peace. It did not say that. It called them to live in peace through those situations, in spite of those challenging situations. And today, as we kind of take a look at the four of them, I want us to imagine ourselves in their shoes. Think of how they might be feeling and draw parallels to where we are today in our relationships and in our families in order to get a better picture of what the Bible is calling us to do when it talks about living in peace. All right? Now, the first one that we're going to talk through uh, is this passage in Romans. Now, sidetrack a bit. If you have been following our unstoppable series in the book of Acts, this church, uh, this church in Rome, was planted by people living in Rome who traveled to Jerusalem during the day of Pentecost. So that's when they received the Holy Spirit and they brought the gospel back to Rome and they started the church. The church, I think at its peak, they had a, about 40,000 uh, of size. Now the church in Rome they face two major challenges. Number one, 
the Roman society was a polytheistic society. They worshipped many gods. Uh, they, had, they, they got it from the Greek culture and they had their own pantheon, Jupiter, Venus, Minerva, and all those things. And some even considered the emperor as a deity. So as the Christians, as the Jews were fiercely monotheistic, right? They only believed in one God. And when they refused to worship all these other gods, they became largely unpopular. And at its peak of persecution, every Jew was banished from the city of Rome uh, by the Emperor Claudia, and they only could return after his death five years later. So persecution, that's the first challenge they faced. The second challenge was the lawlessness of the society. Now, though Rome was a, a very successful metropolis, the people there were largely immoral. Violence was rampant, tax evasion and all those things. So in short, the Roman church faced challenge on how to live productively in the world, even though they were not of the world, even though they were not supposed to be like the world. Now, isn't that very familiar to what we face today? Some of us, we face it in our homes. Uh, we want to honour God, we want to honour our family, and they have a different belief. And they start to pressure us. Uh, they frown upon us, they question us, they challenge us. And it makes the relationship in the family a little bit difficult. Some of us, we face it in our industry. Everyone is bribing, everyone is under-declaring at the customs, and without doing it, it just seems that there's no way to be competitive. And we start to be resentful towards the industry and the people in it. Some of us, we face it in our offices. Everyone is backstabbing, there's a lot of politics, and you feel like you're always drawing the short straw, and you just don't want to do anything to do with your colleagues. It was in that context, Paul writes this verse, and you see verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Uh, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Okay, so that's the first situation. They're expected to live peacefully uh, throughout persecution in the midst of lawlessness in the, in the society. Okay, second passage. In Mark 9. Now, this passage is a story less told. So one day, Jesus decided to bring three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, up a mountain on a trip. Okay? And this was when the transfiguration happened, where he revealed his divinity to the three disciples. Now, our focus on the story is the nine disciples that were left behind. So there was a man who brought his demon-possessed child to meet Jesus. So obviously, Jesus was not there, right? He's in the mountains. And the remaining nine disciples tried their best to cast out the demon, but they could not, okay? So there was a big commotion, and when Jesus came down from the mountain, he cast out the demon, and the whole party reconvened, and they traveled to this place called Capernaum. Along that journey, there was an argument that broke out. Now, I, it doesn't say how it broke out. It doesn't say who started it. Uh, it. Potentially, it could be the three disciples who were chosen to the mountain. Uh, they felt proud. and They felt they were better than the rest. Or it could be the nine other disciples who felt inferior. They weren't chosen, and now they couldn't even cast out the demon. 
And they started arguing between themselves, within themselves, on who was the greatest disciple. Many times in our lives, I don't know about you, but for me, there are so many times, my internal struggle, my pride, my insecurity has caused it to affect the relationships around me. There are times I felt, wow, I'm so good, I'm better than others. There are times I felt so inferior, I'm not good enough for anyone. I remember the days when I was staying in a ministry house in Sunway, and the house was rented so people could do live group in the house, okay? Now, one thing I did not anticipate when I decided to stay there is my ex-girlfriend would also use the live group, uh, the house to run her live group, okay? So it's a little bit awkward. I felt a little bit uncomfortable. And maybe it's my insecurity or anger. I, I, I don't know. I can't really remember. But because of that, it caused me to distance away from anyone who used the house. And I failed to be a good host. I failed to be a blessing to the students. And maybe some of you are thinking, ah, that's why I know Eugene's so weird back then. I always stay alone. I used to hide in my room. I used to stay back work late so I wouldn't meet any one of them. Many times, our internal struggles affects our relationships. And that was the case in Mark 9. And look at what Jesus says. I, I know it's a little bit complicated, right? There's a lot of saw and all those things. In simple terms, Jesus meant, just like salt could preserve food, you are to be preservers of peace. Have peace with one another, okay? So second context where this living in peace was used. Third time, 2 Corinthians. Now, the church of Corinth, their major challenge, it wasn't persecution. It was spiritual pride and factional division in the church. Now, the members of the church of Corinth were largely freedmen, all right, which are people, slaves, ex-slaves, who had earned their way out of slavery. So these people, they were relatively wealthy, and I don't know, is it because they didn't have much choice when they were slaves early in their life or they got used to having choices as they became rich. But these people became very selective and opinionated when it comes to church issues. They preferred one thinking process over another. They chose one leader over another. And well, there's nothing wrong with differing opinions, right? But these people were stressing on these differences and they were creating a gaggle of groups that were opposing one another. And they were so busy fighting that they had no time to do the works of God. We live in a society today that has abundance of choice. Everywhere we go, there's choice. And it's very obvious just in the way we consume food, right? I don't know if you have been to this place in Chowkid. It's one of the first uh, traditional chili panmi outlet. Okay, it's called Kin Kin Panmi. So you try going there and you tell the uncle, Uncle, I want to add noodle. I don't want ikan bilis. He will tell you, I have only one dish. You one big order two bowls. You cannot finish, share with your friend. That's it. You go to a more modern panmi shop today, there's a whole paper. Uh, a, thick noodle, B, thin noodle, C, pumpkin noodle, fourth, spinach noodle, and then you can choose big, small, add egg, no egg, add chili, and all these different choices. Now, there's nothing wrong with choosing our food, right? Or we all love to have our own flavor. But if we are not careful, 
we can carry it over to the rest of our lives, to the other areas. We can carry it into our family and that starts to have favoritism. We can carry it to our workplace and that's when politics happen. We can carry it into our church and that's when we start saying, oh, today not Pastor Tim, I don't want to listen. I only listen to Pastor Tim, he's the best. We can look at the worship leader, this worship leader very out of tune or this worship leader always choose these songs, I don't know one. I don't want to watch service today. I'll go to another church. And in that context, this is what Paul, Paul wrote to the church to remind them. He says, be of one mind. Live in peace. Okay? Last one. 1 Thessalonians 5. Now the church in Thessalonica, again, is a heavily persecuted church. It was a young church when Paul wrote this letter. But it's a very different context that he used this statement being in peace. If you read 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul talks about this church being a church that imitates Jesus, that imitates apostles. And he honors them for being, some, for being a church who received the gospel not just by words, but by power, by the Holy Spirit, and by deep conviction. And it was in that context, he pens this down, and he tells the church, brothers, respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work and be at peace among yourselves. I don't know about you, but I would assume many of us would have people in our lives that are doing the best they can out of difficult circumstances. And what better way to honor them, to esteem them, than to have peace among ourselves. I hope you get the point I'm landing at and the picture that the Bible is trying to paint. Irregardless of what situation you are in, be it external challenges and pressures, be it internal struggles and insecurities, be it differing opinions, we are all called to live in peace with one another. So the big question now is how? How can we do that? The word erinuo, which is the active word of living in peace, it has three dimensions to it according to the Greek lexicon, all right? It's not something that came out. It's, a call, it's the meaning of the word. It's keep peace, make peace, be in peace. And for the remaining of my message, I want to translate this into my family, uh, what we have done, what we didn't do, and what could have been better. And I know that by no means my family is representative of of everyone's family, every family has its own unique challenges. Some of you may be in way tougher times, but I hope as I translate it to mine, it can help you get an idea of how to translate it to yours. For the past two years, my time or my living arrangement has been split between living alone in PJ and living with my parents back in Alostar, right? So I would travel to and fro, usually before the MCO happens, all right? Being someone who has lived alone for maybe a good six, seven years, there's always some adjustment to make when I go back home, right? So you can imagine where I experience more peace. And, and again, maybe my parents have to make some arrangements as well. Every time we have to make this adjustment, 
it often arises in some tensions. So the last argument I had with my mom goes like that. My house has uh, unusually strong uh, water pressure. So you turn the tap a bit, the water just bursts out and it just spills all over. So every time I have my meal and I go to wash my plates, I turn on the tap and the water would just mess up the whole kitchen. And my mom would be very annoyed and she would constantly tell me, hey, just turn a bit can ready. Our water very power one. And, but you know mus muscle memory, right? That's not the only tap I turn. And one day, my mom got really annoyed. And she was saying, hey, yo, simple thing, you also cannot do. Turn tap, you also cannot do. And I start to react. I told my mom, mom, you want to complain, you complain about the tap. I turn all tap the same. It's not like purposely turn your tap harder or what. It's not my problem. It's your tap that's the problem. You fix your tap. And my mom gets really annoyed and she starts saying, wow, you guys, I do so many things for the house. I cook for you. I wash your clothes. I ask you to turn tap softer. You cannot even do. And the argument just explodes. I start telling her, mom, I come back home. I never even ask you to do one thing. My sisters come back. They ask you to cook this, cook that. For me, I'm very simple. You don't cook for me. I order food. You don't wash my clothes. I send you Dobby. That's just how I live. So anything you choose to do is you choose to do. I didn't ask you to do. And the argument just break. Ah, la, la, la. And eventually, I left the house. Okay? Many times, I know you're thinking, this guy is very stupid. La. This kind of thing is on the fight. But many times, our argument, we, it arises of insignificant things like that, right? Someone has a bad day. Now, I'm not talking about those serious cases of abuse, gambling problems. Those are another category. I'm talking about a large majority of our fights. It's flaring tempers. Someone used a wrong word. It's misunderstanding. Someone's more sensitive that day and we allow it to snowball into a large conflict. Imagine if every time before we react, we start to think, how can I keep peace? And we start thinking this sentence, you are more important than what happened. Imagine if my mom had thought that, right? Oh, my son messed up, but he is more important than the mess. And I got to say this, because November I'm going back, I need to protect myself. But imagine if I had thought the same as well. My mom nagged and so on. But my mom is more important than the nagging. There won't be any argument. I want to encourage some of us today. If you are living in a lifestyle, there's a lot of conflicts everywhere you go. Maybe you're more hot-tempered or you just have a shorter fuse. Every time before you react, just think, keep peace. You are more important than what happened. And I assure you, there will be transformation in your relationships. All right? Second dimension, making peace. Many times when we think about making peace, we think like that. The person who is the most at fault has to be the one to make peace. Now, there's a problem here. Because in an argument, you will think I'm at fault, I will think you're at fault. In the end, nobody wants to make peace. And I know we like to say time will heal, but I would argue time can also widen the gap between people until it gets so difficult to reconcile. When I was younger, I used to play a lot of Chinese chess with my sister. I always win one. And there was one time we were playing chess and we had an argument about the Chinese rule, right? Qi so bu hui. You touch the piece, you have to move the piece. So we kind of had an argument 
And my sister said, I don't want to play already. And that was the last game we ever played. And I was thinking to myself, what if just one of us had went over and apologized and made peace? Potentially, we would have many enjoyable moments together. And it's not like the game matter a lot. But the point I'm trying to make is this. Because we did not address at that time, the gap between us grew and we didn't bother to reconcile after that. I want to read to you uh, an excerpt from this book. I'll tell you why she wrote it later, okay? But this excerpt, she wrote it about my dad. And I thought it's just a brilliant picture about uh, making peace. So here goes. As for my dad, I have one memory about him that stands out among the rest. It was school morning. I was up around 6.30 getting ready to catch the bus. A few nights ago, my dad had just confiscated my phone because I was playing handphone games in church. Uh, only my sister would do that. We all don't do that. Something that he strongly disapproved of. I told him then, I don't need his phone anymore. He could have it back. In my arrogance and immaturity, I told him that if he didn't want to give me anything else, it was perfectly fine with me. But that morning, he stood at the door to my room with the phone, wanting to give it back to me and hug me. No matter how many times I refused his embrace and tried to push him away, he wouldn't budge. That morning, I knew what persistent, unwavering love looked like. You know, who was at fault here? It's my sister, right? So obvious. Who went to make peace? It was my dad. Why? He simply valued the relationship more. You know, making peace with someone, it's not going to the person and saying, I don't feel hurt. It's not going to say, I'm at fault. Going to someone to make peace is saying, you are more important than my pride and my ego. And I can't bear to see a distance between our relationships. I want to encourage us today. If you have someone in your life, someone dear to you that you need to make peace, do it. And just as it helped my sister realize that my dad loved her so much, something beautiful will come out from your act of peacemaking. All right? Last one. If keeping peace says you are more important than what happened, and making peace says you are more, than, more important than my ego, being in peace is saying God is bigger than my situation. As I prepared the message, I spoke to my mom over two hours and I asked her, what was the biggest crisis in our family? And throughout all our business challenges, they had to raise someone as rebellious as me. They kind of landed on my sister's battle with depression, which she eventually wrote into a book, okay? If you look at the book and you look at this picture, my sister with two of our beloved prime ministers, you would able to guess my sister was as high of an achiever as anyone. This is a, I don't know if you can see it, but this is a resume that my sister pieced together when she was in uni applying for a waitress job, okay? I've, I see this, I don't even dare to hire her as a waitress. Uh, maybe highlight some to you. She scored 2,320 in her SATs, perfect scores in maths, physics, chemistry. That person in the 99th percentile, 
She was national champion in debate. She did community work. She led an expedition in Korea, awarded the Blue Peter Badge, which is awarded to teens for, as, as, um, for their accomplishments, okay? Uh, she was national champion in drama. She represented Malaysia to Greece to compete in the International Mathematical Olympiad. It's like the Olympics for math. And just look at some of the things she wrote. Piano grade 8, violin grade 8, music grade, theory grade 8, ballet grade 8, certified first aider. And she wrote this in a book. Imagine if I've put in all my state level, district level, and school level achievements. The book won't, will be too thick. So I, I know you can see by this, my sister was someone poised to be the cream de la cream be at the top of the top in the top universities. Towards the end of her high school life, she started to get tired of achieving, right? That's how she put it. And this is what she said. I'm the type that needs compelling reasons to do things. So when I lost my reasons to excel, I began to resent what I was doing. There just wasn't any excitement or fulfillment anymore. And, but despite all this, she went to junior college in Singapore on a scholarship and was a top student in her first year in JC. And there was just started to have a lot of stress, and she started to turn to food for, for relief. Uh, she said she ate cornflakes, potato chips, and she widened her range to anything that was edible. She talked about the day that she wake up at 6 a.m. She would run to the petrol station 10 minutes away just to buy ice cream for breakfast. She would talk about the time she would just tear open instant noodle packet and just eat it raw. And she eventually put on 22 kg and it corroded her confidence and caused her to hide from people. The breaking point came and she called it the defining moment of her depression. It was two months before her final exam. She walked out of hostel and instead of walking to school, she just ran the other way and she just gave up. And this was how she put it, how she felt before and after she gave up. She said, I am hanging on for dear life at the edge of a cliff. I'm feverishly trying to haul myself up, seizing the rope with all my might. My hands are bleeding. It's been like an eternity, and the top seems so far out of reach. I let fantasies of life on top lure me, summon all the will I have, and I pull once again at the rope. I keep striving, because that seems like the best option. After she gave up, this is what she wrote. I am falling. It has been too long. My fingers let go of the rope. My arms grow limp. My jaw unclenches. My eyes close. I fall slowly through the silent thick air. I have given up the fight. And she couldn't sleep. She couldn't study. Whenever she looked at her homework, her mental capacities just went poof. And knowing she had issues, they kind of diagnosed her as having bipolar disorder, which is a mental disorder that caused extreme mood swings, okay? This is what she wrote during the day of her A-levels paper. I never really wanted to sit for the paper. In fact, I inquired whether an absent grade would look better on my cert than a fail. But they said economics was my only humanity subject. It would be important for university. So I decided I'm going to try. But in there, I did not try. I did not try at all. I didn't even read the questions. I scribbled a few lines explaining that I did nothing, there would be no need for the examiner to panic over loose answer scripts. Just give me zero, I wrote. This was someone who scored 
in the 99% of the SATs now scoring zero in the A-levels. This was someone who would have been easily accepted into the Ivy Leagues. She was rejected by NTU, NUS, even Monash University. And she eventually studied in Taylor's. And this was what she wrote on the day she entered Taylor's. My parents were not thrilled that I was going to some commercialized education. My mom spends nights sighing because she felt all her meticulous efforts in honing my talents and skills had gone down the drain. She had failed to help me secure the future she believes I deserve. My dad expressed regret that I would not get to taste what campus life is like as my college sits in a commercial square. People ask my family insensitive questions that hurt them. What is Jasmine doing now? Why isn't she in Singapore? What happened? And the worst, why is she so fat? I believe I can only feel a fraction of hurt my mom feels when all this happens. Knowing you have sold your best into your child's life and seemingly getting it all wrong. I will never understand the extent of her pain until I have children of my own. And I asked my mom, Mom, what did you feel? My mom said on one hand, it's really concerned for my sister. She felt like such a waste. My sister was so bright. And in two months, her future is just gone. And on the other hand, it was just reflecting as, a, as her failure as a parent. And she talked about the time, you know, my, sis, my younger sister, which was way younger, she was receiving an award in school. And people were just talking below the stage saying, wow, oh, this person, uh, her sister studied and it went crazy already. The mom, very insane one, pushed them like mad. And it's, it doesn't feel good. And my mom kept questioning God, why did it happen? And she said, eventually, slowly, she developed a peace of God, knowing that God would be there for my sister. And my mom asked me, in that phase, did you notice anything different? Did it affect our relationship? And honestly, I couldn't remember. My mom ran the home as usual. She took care of us as usual while trying to manage my sister's situation. And I asked my mom, what are some of the best practices that help you be at peace through this devastating situation? She said, simple. Every night, dad and her would pray. She would feed on God's word. And I was trying to find, is there any special angle or framework that I could share with you guys? And I realized there's no secret. It's simply drawing close to God and allow Him to draw close to you. Philippians 4 says, the peace of God surpasses all understanding. I know some of us, we are in way more overwhelming situations. And it just seems it's impossible to be at peace. But this peace is supernatural. And it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This year is the vaccine towards conflict. It's the key towards living in peace. It's what that allows us to be peacekeepers through the midst of conflict. It's what allows us to be peacemakers even though we are hurt is what allows us to look at our situation and say, God, you are bigger than it all. Today as we come to a close, 
if you are someone that wants this peace in your life, you could be someone who has never experienced peace from Him. You could be someone who has walked away and you want this peace again. Or you could be someone who has never known Him and you want to know more. I want you to pray after me as I make this prayer. God, I want this supernatural peace in my life. I know you are the giver of peace. I surrender my thoughts, my emotions, and my circumstances to you. I invite you into my life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.